before I forget, I just want to say on behalf of Shelley and myself, a uh, very big thank you for what last week's ordination service meant to us. Uh, thank you to the elders board, to Pastor Dan, and to all of you in your words and cards. And it was, uh, it was an unspeakable blessing for us to be lifted up by you in that way last week. And thank you very much. I also want to say welcome to Jaysman Tai, who I spotted this morning and who I presume is back from India. <laughs> so we're uh, looking forward to hearing what the Lord did there sometime. So welcome. Will you please turn with your, in your Bibles with me this morning to 1 Peter chapter 1. To 1 Peter chapter 1. If you're using the Bibles tucked under the chairs, it'll be page 1014. If you're not, it's pretty close to the end of the Bible. Find Revelation and work backwards. And while you're turning there, I'm going to take a scenic route and make a few stops along the way before I meet up with you in First Peter. Just a few flashbacks to set the stage for what we're about to read. In John chapter 13, Jesus was speaking privately to his 11 apostles. The night before his crucifixion, Judas has already left the building. He has gone to betray Jesus, and Jesus says these words. Where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. And Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow me afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you? Now, Jesus tells them he's leaving, and he gives them his great new commandment, love one another as I have loved you. But Peter's mind isn't on the commandment at the time. All he can think about is the fact that Jesus just said he's leaving and that they can't follow. And Jesus says, listen to me, here is what I want you to do. Love one another. And Peter says, I've got a better idea. I'll just go with you. So even though Jesus tells Peter he can't follow him now, Peter insists that he knows better than Jesus does on that occasion. And eventually, Peter will come to grasp something very important. That when Jesus told Peter to love his brothers the way Jesus had loved him, that was the kind of following that Jesus expected of him. To put it bluntly for us, you cannot follow Jesus while ignoring his commands. For Christians living in the world today as exiles who do not quite belong, for the time being, following Jesus doesn't mean going straight to where he is. It means loving the way Jesus loved right here and right now. Jesus himself said in John 13, we just read this, by, all people, by this all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. There are countless ways that the world is going to look at the church and judge the church wrongly. And just get it wrong, because they're lost and spiritually blind. But when the world looks at the church and sees division and strife and gossip and hypocrisy and bickering and grudges instead of Christ-like love for one another, when that happens, the world is using exactly the criteria Jesus gave it to judge his people. So in John 13, when the disciples are confused and freaking out that Jesus said he's leaving, the great commandment kind of got overlooked. Not what we usually call the great commandment, Jesus' new commandment. But later on in life and ministry, I think that command took hold of Peter's heart and mind and life and started to bear fruit. 
And the part of 1 Peter that we come to this morning, beginning in verse 22, I think we have some important teaching from Peter as he learned how important Jesus' commandment to love one another really is. Peter's been thinking about how crucial it is that God's people truly love one another from the heart. And he writes here to encourage them and encourage us how it's possible. And this area of genuine, deep-seated, and intense love for the family of God is not an optional extracurricular class for advanced Christians. This is right at the heart of Christ's purposes for his people, that we would love one another the way he loved us. So with that in mind, let's listen to our text this morning. 1 Peter chapter 1, beginning in verse 22, and we're going down to chapter 2, verse 3. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly, From a pure heart. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. So put away all malice, and all deceit, and hypocrisy, and envy, and all slander. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. May the Lord guide us and add his blessing to the reading of his word this morning. So how does the truth in these words that we just read equip us to actually love our brothers and sisters? Let's just consider an outline of what we just heard, the logical flow of the argument, and you have it in your notes there. First, Peter begins by mentioning something that has already happened in the lives of his readers. This is what has already happened. And the short answer is they have been saved by faith in Christ, and because of that, they now love each other for real. Next, what must happen next? What happens after that? And the short answer, the main command in this passage, is they need to love each other even more. This is the main goal behind our passage this morning, and it's one that we will never outgrow. Love each other more, love better, love as he loved us. Next comes a reminder of how what has already happened, happened. So how have they been saved? What is the source of their new life together? Again, a short answer, the new life within them is the result of the eternal word of God. Then finally, Peter goes on to explain how what should happen next is going to be possible. How what will happen next will happen. How is it going to prove possible that believers will really grow up into the kind of love they were saved for? The short answer, by longing for spiritual milk so that the new spiritual life in them will grow. This is the logical flow of the argument before us. There's a review of what has already happened. There's a call to what must must happen next. A reminder of what how how what already happened happened, and then how what happens next is going to happen. Rejected sermon titles this week included that just happened, the happening, and wait what just happened. 
But we settled on something a little nicer, I think. But the big idea at the center of our work this morning is pretty clear. And this is it. The new love that the gospel requires of us is made possible through the new life that the gospel produces in us. The new love that the gospel requires of us is made possible through the new life that the gospel produces in us. We could say it even shorter. New life grows and matures into new love. So let's start with the statement of what has already happened. The first phrase of verse 22. There's three parts here. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love. Comma. Because the sentence is nowhere near over, but this is all we can chew on at one time. There's three, three ideas here. Peter writes, reminding his readers that these three things have already happened. First, your souls have been purified. Second, the means of that purification is your obedience to the truth. And third, an immediate and already present consequence of that purification is this. You have sincere brotherly love. Peter isn't asking them to do a single thing yet. He's just telling them what's already true about who they are. And this is Peter's idea of who they already are, simply by, by virtue of them being Christians. This is an amazing continuation of a long, glorious description of what it means to be a Christian that's really been going on since the very beginning of this letter. If you want to glance back at verses 1 through 4 and 18 and 19, you can see even more of this description that's just been going on and on. But imagine if we were to take only the three things that we just talked about in verse 22, and we were to use those as our practical definition and description of what a Christian is. Three things. Your soul has been purified by being obedient to the truth, and you have a sincere brotherly love. What if the next time a religious census was taken, instead of checking a little box that just says Christian, tick, instead there was a description that looked like this. Do you, number one, believe the truth about sin and holiness, about the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ? Two, obey the truth in practice, confessing and forsaking sin, following Jesus in practical day-by-day steps of obedience? And three, are you sincerely committed to the church, which Jesus purchased by his blood? This is Peter's working definition of what it means to be a Christian. And it's a whole lot different than checking a box that says Christian slash Protestant slash other. All those things are included in Peter's baseline assumption of what it means to be Christian. Having already purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love. Peter Davids writes that that phrase, obedience to the truth, helps remind us and make it clear that conversion is not simply a matter of intellectual change, but of transformation of behavior. Conversion can't just be uh, an intellectual changeover. It, it always involves transformation of behavior. So being a Christian cannot mean anything less than both being purified from our sins through belief in Jesus Christ and set apart for obedience to Jesus Christ. That language of being purified in verse 2 has connections to what Jesus said in John fifteen three, speaking to his disciples Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Believe the words of Jesus, and you're both clean in the sense of being cleansed from sin, but you're also clean and purified in the sense of being prepared to live a life 
of good works and obedience and bearing fruit for Jesus. New life in Christ results in new love. New love for God. New love for the truth. And the result of obedience to the truth, very clearly, in verse 22, is sincere brotherly love toward fellow Christians. It's not a perfect love yet, but it is a sincere love. It's real. There's real love in you towards other Christians, even if it's just a little tiny seed that still needs to grow, if you are part of the family of God. And that expression, brotherly love, really helps to express that for us. All you need is siblings to understand what comes along with brotherly love, right? How many brothers and sisters can you think of who really love each other? They really do. They'll do anything for one another, but they seem to struggle pretty hard with just liking each other sometimes, right? So the the love is real, but it could grow a little bit more in practice. What Peter is saying is if you're really in the faith, like it or not, you already possess a sincere love for the church. So then here's what needs to happen next. Love one another earnestly from a pure heart. You already love one another, love more. And that's easier said than done, right? And the reason it's easier said than done is that it's very easy to talk about the stuff that our hearts do, but it's very, very hard to direct the things that our hearts do. Because our hearts don't follow our actions. It works the other way around. Our actions follow our hearts. You want to know what your heart really loves? Watch the things you do and say. That's not my idea. That's Jesus in Matthew 15, 19. Jesus taught what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart. If you want to know what kind of tree you have, wait and see what kind of fruit it grows. You won't be deceived. Changing our heart seems like an impossible thing for us to do. And it is, apart from the work of God. So the next thing Peter will write, our third point is a reminder of just how this new life began. That the change in us is not of our own doing, but the result of the work of the living and abiding word of God. Peter knows that in a sense, the command to love one another from the heart at the end of verse 22 is asking more than we should be able to accomplish, but he links that command to what comes next. Love one another earnestly from a pure heart since you have been born again. Not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. It wouldn't be fair to ask you to love one another from pure hearts except for the fact that you've truly been born again if you have trusted Jesus Christ. And if you've been born again, there is something inside of you that was not there before. And I want to slow down for a while and reflect on that and let the full impact of it transform our minds. We don't want to mentally skip ahead and kind of fill in the blanks on the test with what we think we already know. We want to listen to the word. God has caused us to be born again through faith in Jesus Christ. And by asking us to do the impossible, loving one another from the heart, he's asking us to do that on faith that God has already done the impossible within us. It's been done. There is a life in you that was not there and is there now. And that life is not like the old, perishable, defiled, and dying life you knew before. It's different. I want us to look really closely in verse 23 at those words, born again. English grammar quiz time. Every verb has a subject and an 
object. Right? The object of the verb, born again, is us. Being born is not something that you do. It's not something that I do. It's something that happens to me. So who's the subject of the word, verb? Who's the doer? And it helps if we substitute a slightly different phrase for born again. We could substitute the old-timey King james genealogy language. And we say begotten again, which is what that word really means. Since you have been begotten again. Not just born, because born just kind of hangs there. I was born. I'm not exactly sure how that happened. I'm very thankful I was born. I wonder if there's anyone I should, I don't know, send a thank you card to once a year on the third Sunday of June. I think we'll call it I was born day. Right? Begotten, though, is different. Begotten, in order to be begotten, someone must have begotten you. There was a begatter. Right? It helps to clarify that there's an active subject to the verb here. And it's the language that we use in genealogies. Right? Abraham begat Isaac, and Isaac begat Jacob, and Jacob begat a whole litter. But I was going to say a whole bunch of problems, because that's true too, but. How do we usually translate the genealogies in modern English when we don't want to deal with begat? Does anyone know how the ESV translates the genealogy in Matthew 1? Shout it out if you know what it uses. If you turn there in Matthew 1 in the ESV, you'll see became the father of. Abraham became the father of Isaac. And Isaac became the father of Jacob. We don't just say Abraham was born. And then, hey, Isaac was born. And then, hey, Jacob was born. Right? Because that misses a connection uh, of the, the parentage there. People aren't just born, they have parents. And each of the four times that Shelley has informed me there's a child growing inside of her, and yes, I did just confirm a certain wild speculation that Shelley and I are expecting a fourth. Uh, okay. <laughs> I think most of you may have figured it out by now, but in case you hadn't, I'll give you a chance to clap. Um, every time she has told me I've known who the father was. Make, make your own jokes at home. I'm serious right now. Because mothers don't have children without fathers making a contribution. And in the case of verse 23 before us, the contribution that the father has made is an imperishable seed. Something unlike every other kind of life in this entire world. An imperishable seed, the living and abiding word of God. The source of the new life within you is the living and abiding word of God. It doesn't die. Take care then how you hear the word of God. Every time the word is proclaimed, there is the potential for new life to be conceived. Take care because there are only two outcomes when the gospel is preached. It either takes hold and the result is eternal life or it is rejected and there is no life and only greater judgment resulting from persistent unbelief. And so the born-again language that we see in verse 23 could really be understood as newly begotten language or even fathered-again. Born-again Christians, we could say we're fathered-again Christians. We have a new father, an emphasis not on just the fact that new birth has taken place, but on who the father is and that the birth takes place because of the eternal, imperishable word. So let's attend to the life-giving word. In fact, I just want to pray for us right now. Father, give us ears to hear. Help us to take care to hear how we hear your word. Open up your truth and your word to us through the power of the spirit of truth. 
save us from reading our own thoughts into your words, now or ever. We long to see you more clearly, to know you more fully. We know that you are good. Please reveal yourself to us, we pray. Amen. The reason why this matters so much right here in this passage is because there is a contrast between every kind of perishable thing in life that we have ever known or experienced and the new, imperishable, eternal, invincible life that comes to the living and abiding word of God. There's a contrast between everything we might know that fades away and the new life that doesn't because of who the Father is of the new life. Verse 24 Peter quotes Isaiah, For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Every single kind of glory and life that we can observe and experience and measure in this entire world is temporary, it's passing. Nothing lasts forever. Our entire earthly experience from the moment we are born to the moment that we die reinforces that impression. Nothing lasts. Nothing lasts forever. Day and night and seasons, plants, trees, animals, cities, civilizations, you name it. It doesn't last with one exception. The word of God. And if you have been born again through the imperishable word, then the life that is in you is an exception. That's incredible. All flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of grass. There is a kind of passing glory. There is glory in this life. There's glory in temporary things. It just doesn't last. And we would be confused if we didn't acknowledge that there are kinds of glory and uh, things that seem worthwhile in this life, they just don't, they don't last. They're meant to point us towards a, a hope that will last. There's passing glory in flowers and in the flesh. Youthful energy evaporates like dew, but it's awesome. Beauty ages and fades, but it's precious. A great example of passing glory. On Thursday, the Toronto Raptors won the NBA championship. You may have heard. There's glory in that. It's undeniable. It's electric. It's exciting. But boy, it's a passing glory when you think about it. Just think if the Raptors had lost on Thursday and Game 7 was tonight. The electricity looking forward to that Game 7 would be crackling in here. But it's all over and they won. Where's the electricity now? It's exciting that they won, but it's done. On Thursday night, I was in the city, and I had strangers honking their horns and running up to me in the streets and just screaming at me. They didn't know me, but they were just excited. They wanted to share in the moment. And something about that felt right. Yeah, we the North. Like, this is, this is exciting, and this is fun. But three days later, and if you're still going on in the same way, running around honking horns at strangers, do it somewhere far away from me. Okay, the, the moment has passed. It's still great. But it's, it'll never be the same, right? It's why you always remember back to those high school glory days. They don't, they don't last. 
The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Those words were spoken by the Lord through his prophet Isaiah, and they were comfort to exiles in Babylon, living in a land where they did not belong. And the comfort in that message was that human help is weak and unreliable, or in the language of 1 Peter, perishable. There was not enough human help to get them out of Babylon. But the restoration and the redemption and the rescue that was promised through the word of the Lord will not fail. It will come to pass. And the message is much the same to Christians living today as exiles in a land where we don't belong. Our source of help, the very source of life within us, the source of the love that ought to be coming out of us, is not like any other source. Some of you had fantastic earthly fathers, godly fathers. Some of you never knew your earthly father. And probably some of you might even wish you didn't know your earthly father. But every one of us received quite a lot at conception from our earthly father. It might have been your hairline, probably your shoe size, maybe your temper. But all of us received two hugely important things right at conception from our earthly father and our mother too, but father sticks with the contrast in the text. Life and an expiry date. It was life, but it's not life that lasts. Because in a world marred by sin and as part of the human race that has by nature turned away from God, nothing lasts forever. It's all vapor and vanity and striving after the wind, according to the wisdom in Ecclesiastes. That's what makes it so special that all of us in the church, everyone born again to a living hope through faith in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, everyone transformed and ransomed from death, purified for obedience to the truth, every brother and sister around you shares the same Heavenly Father. And the life which he gives lasts forever. And if you have believed the good news that was preached to you, then the same power that said, let there be light, and there was, and the same voice that said to the storm, be quiet, and it listened, and the same power that raised Jesus' body from the grave is at work in you. It's amazing. Now, since that is the case, enough with all of our excuses to hold back from really loving each other, to say, well, it's not possible to love those annoying people that much. Well, Jesus loved all those people that much, and he's put that life in you. It would be impossible to love one another that much if our hearts were unregenerated. It would be unthinkable to try if we were still slaves to sin. But it's exactly fitting for who we truly are, sons and daughters of the Father, co-heirs with Christ, filled with the very Spirit of God. Our final point Now that Peter has reminded his readers about the miracle that made their new life possible, he is going to suggest how we ought to grow up into the challenge to actually love one another the same way God loved us. Chapter 2, verses 1 to 3. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. 
Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Very quickly, let's just run through the list of five vices. uh, Five vices that show up in verse 1. Malice. Malice is like a general category of ill will that uh, that all five of these could fit into. Malice means you have a basic inward intention of your heart that would like to see harm done to others instead of good. Malice is nasty. It's far too common in our broken world, right? To, to, to enjoy when something bad happens to someone else. Deceit is anything less than the whole truth in dealing with others. Lying, allowing false impressions to stand. Deceit means unworthy of trust, anything unworthy of trust. Hypocrisy speaks of pretending to be something that you really aren't being two-faced. Envy is jealousy full-blown, so much so that you hate it when something good happens to someone else instead of, rejoice, instead of rejoicing when something good happens to someone else. And slander is using words, maybe lies and miscommunication, to specifically cause harm. These might seem like petty sins, until you realize that these are the things that make the kind of genuine love that the church is commanded to live impossible. I'm serious. Pick any other sin. The whole list, all the biggies are there. Pick me one sin that belongs on that list of five that will do as much harm to community love than these five sins when they are bearing bitter fruit. The magnificent chapter on love in 1 Corinthians 13 reads like the exact opposite of this list. Thomas Schreiner says these sins listed here tear at the social fabric of the church, ripping away the threads of love that keep them together. Tear at the social fabric of the church, ripping away the threads of love that keep them together. Sounds violent, doesn't it? And accurate. This is anti-love. And it can be pretty default stuff for our hearts. We, we tend to think this is pettier than the other sins. It's not as bad as the other sins. And it can be pretty default stuff. We slip into it before we even realize it. We know this neighborhood well. We might not live there anymore, but we still know where to park. The solution that we find here is built on the language of being born again through the word of God at the end of chapter 1. And the recommendation is this. Crave milk like a newborn baby. That's, that's the step. That's the task. There are two main commands in our whole passage today. The first one is up in verse 22. Love one another from a pure heart. And then the second major command is right here. Long or crave for pure spiritual milk that will make you grow. Long for spiritual sustenance so that the new life in you actually grows. Crave it like a newborn baby. Because on the inside, you have been reborn. And there is a new life that must grow. You see, looking at verses 1 and 2 together, this is not a two-step program. It's not two separate actions that you need to do. It's not one action is putting away all those bad things, and another action is craving what is good. You can't score one out of two on this. It's the one that you're doing is 
the opposite of the one that you're not doing. Right? There are two natures within you. Your sinful flesh, which seems vibrant but will wither one day, and the new imperishable life that you owe to your Heavenly Father. You are going to obey one of those natures. You are going to disobey one of those natures. Peter's advice? Long for spiritual milk so that your spiritual life grows. If, you're so, if you get used to putting yourself first and looking down at others and getting your own way and lying, being jealous, gossiping, those things are so natural, we'll just slip into them automatically. Unless, unless in that moment, you take a step of faith and you cry out for rescue from Christ instead. Crave what will make you grow, what will feed your inward spiritual life instead of the flesh. The main point is this. Even though your physical life in the flesh is perishable and was formerly shaped by all those ignorant desires, if you have been born again in Christ through the living word of God, there is a new and imperishable life within you. If it took the power of God's uniquely powerful word to create the life that's in you, it should not be surprising to learn that the way your new life is going to grow up into genuine love is by relying on spiritual food, by growing in faith, and by relying on the word of God. Babies need milk. Spiritual babies need spiritual milk. It's as simple as that. One last important word here, though. Sometimes we reach this point in a message like this, and we sort of just think, oh, come on. All of that just to tell us we can't really do it on our own, and we've got to believe in God. I knew that last week and the week before and the week before. Right? It feels like that. But here's the difference, the way I see it in our passage this morning. The way we grow in faith is by taking steps of obedience in the truth. Faith isn't faith without trust. And trust isn't real unless it's being walked out in life and leaned on. So every day you walk, and every day I walk. And if we walk in the familiar old paths that are easy, bitterness and rivalry and lies and fake phony hypocrisy, envy and slander, then those old ways of coping and living and just kind of getting stuff done become what we practically trust in, in a day-to-day way. The challenge here is that if we have really tasted that the Lord is good, if we are convinced and we believe that he has given us a life that is pure and undefiled, if you believe that through Christ God is now your father, and even though it may be small, there is a life in you that bears a familial resemblance to Jesus Christ, if you believe that, you have to trust it enough to walk by that new nature instead of relying on the old. Walk by the Spirit and you will not give in to the desires of the flesh. Spiritual babies need to crawl before they can walk. They need to eat and grow before they can crawl. The command in verse 2 is pretty entry level here, right? It's not even crawl. Long for milk. That's where we start. Crave spiritual nourishment. Like newborn infants who have no other options available to them, make use of the only option you've got and point your desires towards the one thing that can help you grow. Do it in faith. 
A lack of spiritual growth, a lack of genuine love, indicates a spoiled spiritual appetite. There is little chance that you will grow if you are not craving the thing that will build you up. And you will not crave spiritual milk if you're continually used to filling up on trash. This is the relationship between discipline and faith, isn't it? You only grow through faith, but it's actually faith to trust God enough to do things his way. And it takes discipline to make the choices that line up with what you believe. If you have tasted that the Lord is good for salvation, then we must trust him enough to obey the truth and grow up into that salvation. Feed on the living and abiding word of God. Crave for yourself spiritual food and nourishment from outside this passing world that will not last. The good news that was preached to you is not a dreary guilt trip that says you did bad again and you have to try harder. What God is asking for is a love that only emerges from dependence on him. And it's good news that the word of God is not beyond reach, but it has come close in Jesus Christ our Savior. Is there an appetite for the word of God and the things of Christ in your life? Are you hungry for the truth that will actually cause you to grow up in love or is something else spoiling your appetite? If you trust in Christ, God has become your father and the source of life within you is invincible. So standing firmly on that great gift, what can you do in the coming week to increase your longing for him? to increase your cravings for the truth. You can't create the new life, but you can run with it. You can lean into it. You can trust it. Do you need to set aside obstacles and point your hope in a disciplined effort towards God so that you might grow in faith? Take some disciplined baby steps. There is no shame when spiritual babies take baby steps. And in the words of our passage this morning, each one of us has been born anew. And we need to grow in faith if we are going to grow at all. So maybe you're not growing and you have no hunger for spiritual milk because you've barely even tried it. You don't feel hungry because you're full of all the old stuff. Start small. Look at the page right in front of you. Look at the page now at the passage that we read today. Find the verse in our passage that God has used to feed you the most this morning. Underline it. Come back to that passage every day this week and pray. Thank God for what he taught you. Ask him to help you grow. And then come back next week expecting to be fed again, expecting to grow some more. Start praying, God, what are you going to teach me next week? I wonder what it is. Ask for forgiveness. When you say something with your mouth that you shouldn't have. Pray for strength to change before you give in to temptation. Find ways to grow in love. Ask a mature Christian for help. Just say, I don't know what I'm doing, but I need to grow. Can you help me? Or get some tools that will help you study the Bible better. Invest in them. Create an interest and a hunger for the things of God. If you don't know what your devotions are going to be tomorrow... Read Psalm 34, which was read for us earlier this morning, and reflect on maybe how that connects and and can be used in the way that Peter talks about here. God has already done the most amazing thing by begetting us again, by causing us to be born again through faith in Jesus Christ. 
That life is supernatural and it is invincible. And it is inside of you. And it is the basis of your entire Christian walk. One of the consequences of that life is that there is already a true brother and sister love between you and the rest of the church. And maybe it feels more like sibling rivalry for now, but if you're in Christ, that love is in you. God does not desire a Father's Day card from you. He wants us, all of us, to grow up into the same kind of love that he showed us in Jesus. And the reason that that huge order is possible is because there is new life within us. God's word is powerful enough to make you alive in Christ. It is also powerful enough to help you love like Christ. If you've tasted the new life, hunger for the new love. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as has already been mentioned and prayed this morning, this is a day when we give special pause and we think we are thankful that we pray and we are allowed to call you Father. We are thankful that through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Savior, we have been redeemed and rescued out of an old empty life, a perishable life, a life that was cut off from you and given an eternal purpose, given a life that belongs with you in heaven. Thank you that you put your spirit within us to continually transform us so that we look more like Jesus Christ. And Lord, we pray that in the coming week, you will open up our eyes to specific, small baby steps that we can take to turn away from the empty things we might trust in and put our faith and our trust directly in you and in your word and in the life your word produces in us through Jesus Christ. Clothe us in Christ this week and teach us to love the way you have loved us through him. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. May the grace of the Father be yours, and peace and grace through Jesus Christ. Amen.